Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another serving of Business Soup Talk Radio. If it's in business, it's business soup. I'm your host, John Dibbavoise. Today, we're going to be talking money, lots of it. We're going to talk about how the Fed has printed more money in 90 days than they have in the past 90 years. We called upon our resident asset manager, Brent Wilsey, to talk about what it means. Also, we're going to be talking about how the federal government is the largest owner of public and private debt. So we'll be talking about that as well as Chinese companies delisting in the U.S. market. Is that good for us? Also one of my favorites, the small cap publicly traded companies, those that trade at or below $1 a share. So pull up a chair, sit on down, because we are bringing you the tips, tools, and techniques of better business right here on Business Soup. Brent, welcome back to Business Soup. John, so good to be back. Always a pleasure to have you. One of the mainstays in the financial planning course, we can't miss you with your asset management company. You are everywhere around Southern California. And that raised a question that I had before I get into about the economies and such, is that is what is an asset manager, as you call yourself, and how does that differ from a financial planner? John, that's a great question. And unfortunately, the industry has been kind of tainted. And what we are is, is an asset manager, investment advisory firm, is we actually manage and invest money. Very clean and simple. I can describe the opposite with a financial planner. And by the way, in our firm, we do have a true financial planner because he's on a salary. He does not charge commissions. He does not sell product. He is a true financial planner. What a financial planner does, what his job is, is he looks at the whole financial picture. He'll look at the taxes. He'll look at the insurance. He will look at your goals as far as what you want to retire with. What about Social Security? So he does a whole financial plan. And also our financial plan that we charge a small fee monthly so that if you have questions, and this comes up many times, I'm thinking about selling my house. I'm thinking about refinancing. Harrison, what should I do? Right. Now, me on the investment side, I'm, I do have been in the business for 40 years. I do have my own knowledge, but it's so much better. When you have a financial planner looking at everything, because I may give you a recommendation, but I didn't know your tax situation. Right. So my job is I always tell people, and it's not an easy job, it's to make people money. It takes a lot of work to understand how to invest. And this is why my opinion is you cannot be a financial planner, a true financial planner, and also invest money for people because something's going to be lost there. And I've seen many people use the financial planning to get people to invest money, but they're not good investors because they're trying to do the whole thing. You can't have one guy build your whole house. You need the plumber. You need the electrician. You need the carpenter. Same thing comes to the financial world. You need an investment advisor. You need a financial planner. You need an accountant. You need a lawyer. It takes many people to do the right job for you. Oh, I, w- I was with you up until the lawyer part. You know, I try to avoid the, <laughs> try to avoid the, the ESQs there. But, yes, it is. You do need to cover your assets, as I call it. Yes. And so the difference, as I understand it, is a financial planner, which can be a certified financial planner, which is not the question. is, But they're in the business of are they just sitting there looking at your money? Or are they taking it and they're putting it into low risk or they're following your directions? Is that what a financial planner does? Well, a financial planner actually does more listening than talking. He wants to listen to what your situation is. and He can give you solutions. 
Um, the other thing too that, and I'm kind of talking about the other financial planners. And again, our, our financial planner is a CFP as well. I think that it's important. But the other thing that financial planners do, they try to do everything as I talked about, and they'll put people into different mutual funds and asset allocation. Well, now that's not that important because they now have what they call robo-advising, which is done automatically for you. So to pay a financial planner to do that for you, you can get it done at Charles Schwab, at TD Ameritrade for like 40 basis points. Why pay a financial planner to do that for you? All right. So in the field that you're in, do you find that small business owners, such as my audience, they have a propensity to use a financial planner or an asset manager, or are they using their spouse? <laughs> Some use their spouse, <laughs> which may not be a good thing, but uh, it depends on their situation. And actually, our financial planner does business planning because there's a little bit different aspect to that as well. Businesses and somebody that's an executive for a big firm. But what actually happens is that you need to have a small business, depending if they're starting to build the 401k, they're starting to build other assets, then they need an investment advisor. Uh, and by the way, we are investment advisor firm registered with the SEC. So you have to do that. We have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's right for people, as opposed to some other financial planners out there. They have a suitability requirement, which is not as strong as the fiduciary requirement. But for the small businesses, you do need to have a, a financial planner to kind of help with everything. If you're starting to build assets, you're starting to have the 401ks or the SEPs or whatever you're doing, good to have an investment advisor manage that money because you will do much better. And I have talked to some of my friends that are CFPs, and I can say this without getting in trouble, that we have outperformed them because they're doing a cookie cutter approach. We spend a lot of time doing just the investment, understand the investments, we do very well over the long term. All right. So can anybody be a asset manager? Can I walk out of my place and hang my shingle up there? This is a Cowboy John asset manager. Not really. Um, I mean, you do have to go through the SEC the state of California. Oh, so, so there are some rules. There are some rules. Yes. And, and again, we are registered with the SEC. Uh, there are some requirements that you do have to follow. Like any profession, there's good asset managers, investment advisors, I always tell people, understand what the philosophy is. When, when someone comes to our office, we spend about a 30-minute time going over how we do things. We talk about looking at the balance sheet, the income statement, the cash flow statement. We do the, you know, what are the earnings going forward? What about the debt of the company? We do all these different things to, to show them how in-depth we're going. So if I want to avoid some taxes, say with my family, I've had some real estate for my family's had some real estate for a lengthy period of time, and I want to avoid taxes of, of all taxes, and I want to set up the estate so that my kids, if I so choose, set up an estate so that we avoid as much of the tax as legally, morally, and ethically possible. And that would not be me. And I always tell people, my first job is to make you money. I'd rather make you money and pay taxes and people make this big mistake. They try to avoid paying taxes. They make no no money at all. Well, you have to make money first before you're obligated <laughs> to taxes. Yeah, there's a, there is that conundrum. Yeah. So, but a financial planner can look at everything, and that's the important part because he will look at your real estate. He'll look at your investment, your 401k, all different things. He will work with your CPA or your tax person doing your taxes to understand the full picture. My job again is to make people money. Uh, and I tell people, I'll never make a tax decision over economic decision. I'd rather have them make money and pay taxes than make no money and pay no taxes. 
Well, beam me up. All right. <laughs> Brent Wilsey from Wilsey Asset Management. And that was not scheduled, but I wanted to find out just what is an asset manager versus a financial planner. And thanks for the answers. I wanted to get on to some of my favorite things, and that is what's going on in our economy. And as I pointed out, the feds have printed more money in the last 90 days than they have in the last 90 years. That can't be good for our economy. Are we going to see some form of inflation, hyperinflation? And if so, where might it be? I don't believe we'll see hyperinflation because we have to remember what causes inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. But we don't have that situation yet. And here's the big problem, John, when people or governments keep adding money to the economy when it is getting better and it is much better, that becomes a problem. But we're not that situation yet. We still have people on unemployment. We still have businesses that are not doing well. We will have some inflation going forward. I'm, I'm going to guess probably in the 2 to 4% range. But so far, the government has not been, and I want to be careful politically here, but, but I'll put it this way. The negotiations, while they don't look like they're going well, I believe they are going well because it's not like rah, 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 let's just throw more money out to the economy. As we know, they don't have a deal right now. They've not had a deal since August 1st. Right. So that is helping because there's not just more money coming into the economy, but yet the economy is growing slowly. So if they throw too much money and they just keep throwing money, throwing money, we will have hyperinflation down the road because once you do that, you can't back it off and get out of it because it's too late. I'm looking at the stock market and seeing these incredible valuations where Apple is is the biggest value ever, and they're trading at 31 times their next year's earnings. How can that be? How how do they project that, and, and how does it give a value at that rate? Well, I mean, the same thing happened back in the, the tech boom, and what we have now, John, we have a lot of people in the market using Robinhood that are new to the market. They didn't experience the tech boom. I mean, that was like 20 years ago now. So some of these people trading now are, you know, 25, 30, 35, maybe even 40. They didn't experience the tech boom and bust because they had no money back then. Yes, I remember those losses well. <laughs> yeah. See, you and I are also older. So there is something <laughs> good about being older. You have the experiences. And we know that this is not going to end well. I mean, Apple's a great company. They have great products. But to trade at 32 times earnings, it just keeps going up and up and up. Same thing happened to Tech Boom. And I keep hearing the same things like, don't worry. The earnings don't matter anymore. Don't worry about what oh, you yeah. pay for the earnings. Just keep buying the stock. It's going to keep going up. And and these are what we're hearing on the, the talking heads from TV. And some of those guys, the same thing. They didn't experience the tech boom and bust. And, and I was the dumbest guy during the tech boom because I wouldn't participate. Well, here I am once again, the dumbest guy. We sold Apple months ago. <laughs> um, and it's just like, we made a great profit. But I'm not going to keep riding this to the moon. We know nothing goes to the moon and it's really causing some problems because people are going to get sucked in again. And you had a lot of little old ladies that were started day trading back in the tech boom and made money, made money. And then it crashed and they lost everything. And I remember that well. And it reminded me of that real estate crash where anybody could borrow money and you didn't even have to prove that you had an income. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we saw where that led us. Yeah, it's another bubble here, John. And the bubbles keep happening. And they say, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, it's happening again. And I'm not participating. We do not own Apple, Tesla, Facebook. Facebook's not too bad. But um, NVIDIA, these other high flyers, 
I just refuse to buy them. And they keep going up. And they say, see, you're wrong, Brent. Well, I'm not managing money for one or two years. I'm doing it for a 40, 50-year time frame for people. And this is an anomaly. This does not happen. It seems like it's going to keep going on because, oh, my gosh, day after day after day keeps going up. But we know it's going to come back down. And when it does, a lot of people are going to get hurt. And they won't know why they got hurt. That's the biggest problem, John. They don't understand what's going on. We're talking with Brent Wilsey from the Wilsey Asset Management. And with the amount of money that has been pumped into the economy has concerned me and a lot of people because we're carrying a trillion dollars a month in debt on the federal level. We've touched on the hyperinflation possibility of inflation and a reckoning. With the federal government, as I understand, being the largest private and public owner of corporate debt, they've never owned corporate debt before. Is that influencing the market as we see it? Is it, is it giving it a false influx or a false valuation or bump in valuation? How is that working? I know they've, they've done the public debt, but now they're in corporate debt. Right. And, and John, I hate to hear that they're doing that. I know they've been doing it and so forth. And it is one way to keep things stable. I'm not really thrilled about it. I'm not thrilled about the way they did it. I mean, they're doing it through ETS, which I think is wrong. But in the past, they have done it. They, you know, back in the, the, the 2008 Great Recession, they did, you know, help out General Motors. They helped right. out uh, uh, AIG. They, they, they have done this before, but never to the magnitude they're doing now to where they actually step in and buy ETS because I don't think it helps that much. You buy an ETF, uh, it just floats that. The company doesn't get that money directly. So I'm not sure why they're doing it, what the true benefit is of doing that other than maybe to give some people some artificial feeling like, yeah, well, the government's buying corporate debt. So I guess things are, are pretty good. I don't like that. I wish they wouldn't do that. I think there's other better things they could do. And I love the PPP program. I think that was great because it helped out businesses directly. I do not get the benefit of, of the government buying ETFs. I don't see who benefits from that other than people buying that ETF. With the amount of money that's being printed out there, and I'm going to keep hitting you on this subject because it really concerns me. We are seeing a devaluation of our dollar overseas, and inflation is a tax that is unseen. Do you see the dollar going down in value overseas, continuing to drop? And if so, how is that going to impact the goods and services over here? Well, John, I'm on the side that I hope it does keep dropping because that is a benefit for us here. What it does is it makes our products here that we make in the U.S. less expensive for other countries to buy our products. On our side, it makes other products that we're importing more expensive. So as opposed to buying, I'm just going to use this as an example, as opposed to buying a Toyota that's made, I know they are made here in the U.S., but uh, again, some are not, um, as opposed to buying a foreign Toyota, gee, I might as well buy a Chevy because I don't have to pay that extra tax, so to speak, on the higher currency because we have a lower currency. So that's the positive to it. I really think that's a good thing. Now, we don't want it to go down too much. But to have a lower currency, again, keeps your people buying products here in our own country, and it makes them less expensive for other people to buy our products, which can help as opposed to the strong dollar does the opposite. I don't, I'm not a big strong dollar guy. It's nice to bang your chest like, oh, yeah, the U.S. dollar is so strong, but it does hurt your economy because it makes your products that you're making more expensive all around the world. Well, when is it good for the dollar to be very strong? We've seen times in the past where the dollar was very strong. Has that been a good thing for us? Uh, I don't think it's ever really been a good thing for us. It could have some help when it comes to debt and so forth. But overall, I'm more of a guy that wants a good economy. 
Um, and we we should not see a strong dollar now because our economy is weak. That would really, if we had a strong dollar now, it would hurt us even more. So the weak dollar is good. A strong dollar, I, I just can't really, other than uh, people want to buy it more. They want to invest in us here by buying the dollar. But again, that doesn't help our economy. They're just buying the dollar denominations here to, to get the dollar. That doesn't do anything for us. Um, I like the weak dollar because it helps with our economy and make more products that are cheaper for the consumer here in the U.S. and also around the world to buy our products. If the dollar is very weak and the Chinese have bought up a lot of our debt, is it better to pay them back with lower valued dollars? Yeah, actually, that, that is a good thing. Uh, you've done that. And by the way, China, what has been happening in China over the years, and people don't realize this, I don't have the numbers in front of me, China's debt has been running off. And what that means is that as something matures, they don't renew it. So China, I now believe, is the third biggest borrower for the U.S. And the first one is actually U.S. citizens. So that is not the big concern it was, like I'm going to say, five, six years ago, with China being, oh, they, they can own our country. Well, that is running off, which is a good thing. Well, we thought that of the Japanese when they were coming in with the yen and buying up all the real estate, particularly in the New York and, and San Francisco areas. And that didn't work well for them. No, no. And, and again, John, there's so many things in history that you look at. You bring up a great point about Japan and what they were doing. Was so I think it was back in the early 90s. We were so concerned. Oh, my gosh, Japan's going to own the own the country. Well, eventually things change because something goes up, it doesn't happen, and then it changes and a new problem comes up. So, but, but going back to the dollar, you know, in China for years has worked, and again, they deny it, but has worked on keeping their currency low because it makes their products less expensive for us to buy them. Until we start hitting them with tariffs. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing some of the Chinese companies that are being delisted off of the U.S. market. Is that a good thing for us? I, I really think it is a good thing because what's going on here is that the Chinese companies will not let the SEC, uh, you know, regulators from the U.S. come in and look to verify. The SEC does not approve or disapprove securities. But they do want to say, yes, they're doing all the proper filings. Everything is correct. Chinese companies say, no, U.S., you're not going to come in and look at our companies. Well, that's an unfair advantage compared to U.S. company because the U.S. companies have to disclose everything. But in China, and we saw this, and I forget the name of the company, the coffee company, I think it was Luck, Luck Coffee or something. They were making all this up with the sales and so forth. So, <laughs> and, and this is what you're getting because no one is verifying that information. So I think it's a good thing that if they're not going to follow suit, yes, we're going to delist your companies. Now, who it could hurt, unfortunately, and we've talked about Apple already. It could hurt Apple because what the Chinese can say is like, you know what, Apple, you're not going to have our companies here. Apple, you get out. We don't want to buy your products anymore. And it is kind of uh, amazing to me because they have Huawei, Huawei yes. um, which is the biggest phone company in the world. They really don't want Apple in there anymore. So that is a big problem for Apple. If we start delisting companies, China can say, okay, fine, you're doing that to us. We're going to kick Apple out. But is that realistic? That, that is a huge employer, for good or bad, in China assembling the, the Apple products. Would they really pull the trigger on that one and throw one of their biggest manufacturers out of the country to spite us? Um, there would be a point, I don't know how it compares to Huawei, but obviously China, they'd rather have their own company there versus the U.S. company, especially if we keep doing things. And, you know, many times you fight with, with somebody or it's a divorce or a business fight, 
sometimes you do things that maybe aren't the smartest <laughs> thing to do, but you do them because you're pissed off. It's like, okay, you're kicking us out. We're kicking you out. Doesn't mean it's going to help them, but it could happen. And that would devastate Apple. I mean, I, I, I think if that happened, Apple would probably drop at least I don't know, 20, 30% would be a guess. Wow. So when these companies get delisted, you think that obviously the investors that are in the states here that hold shares in the company, they're going to take that money out. And obviously they'll reinvest it in in U.S. companies, which would be a good thing. It'd be a very good thing. Let me get into an area that is one of my favorites, and that's what I call the small cap publicly traded companies. They're often referred to as pink sheet companies, red herrings. You'll hear them all the time. For the audience, that's those companies that trade at or below a buck a share, and they can go down to pennies a share. Does your firm look at these companies, and if so, how do you look at a pink sheet company? Uh, unfortunately, John, we can't get into those because we, we manage, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And if we were to try to buy one of these small companies that will say 50 cents, we would probably own the entire company based on how we got to be careful. And even if we didn't. I think they call that a hostile takeover. <laughs> exactly. And we, we generally don't buy companies that have less than a $1 billion market cap because we don't want to move the market. It's happened to be in the past. And it's very hard when you're trying to get out when you own five, six, even 7% of a company, right. let alone 10, 20%, because then you can move the market and you've made nothing. So, but to comment on it for the small investor, for the business investor, it can make sense. And you said the magic word, and that's research. Do not step in and buy these just because, wow, I can get, you know, 25 cents a share. I can buy like 10,000 shares. And wow, how great <laughs> yeah. that is. <laughs> There's got to be some value behind there. One problem I, I think you got to be careful with the, these very tiny uh, micro cap companies is the information because we know that we're getting the information from these larger companies that's going through the SEC and we're confident with it. With a smaller company, you have to do more homework right. to verify that those financial statements are true. So I think there can be some opportunities there, but you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to be a business person, no accounting. You've got to do a lot of research. But you can make a lot of money by doing the right things and probably being a little bit patient. But to just jump in and buy something because you can buy, you know, a thousand shares for, you know, $250, that, that's not going to help. Oh, you. yeah. You get a phone call and says, I've got the next hottest thing since Apple and it will only cost you 75 cents a share. How many thousands of shares would you like? And that's from a cold call. I've, I've gotten those. Yeah, they, they do happen. Funny, I don't get those. <laughs> yeah. And. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that is often affectionately referred to as a pump and dump. They yes. pump it up and then they dump the stock. So I, I see them, but oftentimes, as I've, as I've joked, that these are the companies that trade by appointment. Yes. You just don't find them listed someplace. you got to go looking for them. What was that movie? It was called Wolf on Wall Street. Yeah. That's a very good lesson. <laughs> that it is. We're talking with Brent Wilsey from the Wilsey Asset Management on all kinds of things. And Brent, I want to hit you up for one more thing on digital currencies. I myself, with my company, have been approached with digital currencies. There's you think. Ethereum, Bitcoin, and there's a whole host of other things I've never even heard of. But I was offered Bitcoin for advertising, which has hit over $12,000 a coin. How familiar with the Ethereums and Bitcoins and digital currencies are you? And what do you do when you get one? (laughs) Well, we have looked at them. And the funny thing is, you say the coin. There is no coin. And and that's the big problem. It's like, where is this made from? they have like these mining things that kind of create it and so forth. It is out there. I know people are making money on it. I know people have lost a lot of money on it. 
And if you can't explain it to people, you should not be into it. And I saw this <laughs> great commercial from, I think it's called Greystone, where they actually, uh, it's like an ETF. And they have, I think, about 10 different you know, uh, type of uh, digital currencies in there. And it's like, wow, we should get this. The commercial is so great because they show the history of you know, the currency and how it happened and so forth. And this is the next thing. It could be. But I want to tell people, it's not backed by a government. When you buy the dollar, it's backed by the U.S. government. When you invest in a Bitcoin, who's backing it? That's right. what I don't understand. And it's just like it's, it's actually kind of like a gold thing. It's backed by the next person that will buy it. That's the value to it. So there's no support for it. It is very speculative. I know people make money on it. I say congratulations to you. you know, I'm glad to hear that. But if I can't explain it or understand it, and even when you ask me, oh, I know all about Bitcoin, well, explain it to me. They come up with all these things, but they never tell you what it is. And I wonder, what do you do when you get it? Being in the horse and cattle business, I've traded a lot of horses. I know what to do with them, even the bad ones. But if I was handed something like this, I would go, all right, now what? Who would get it from me? That sounds like a tough putting putting up for sale. Hey, I got a Bitcoin. Come one, come all. <laughs> and it, it is buyer beware. And it's it's only worth as much as the person behind you is willing to pay. Oh, exactly. It's, it's called the greater fool fairy. You're hoping <laughs> there's a fool out there greater than you. That's going to buy that Bitcoin at that price. And there are a lot of greater fools out there right now. And when did you become P.T. Barnum there, you know? <laughs> but, it, but it's just something that I, I can't recommend. I know it's it's, it's up to, I think you said $12,000. And um, it's been, I think, as high as 20. It's been as low as, gosh, I think I've seen it 100. I just can't explain it. I can't put my arms around it. You can't touch it. You can't explain it. Uh, I recommend people stay away from it. And again, as I said, somebody made money off it. Congratulations. But... I'd say that same thing when people go to Vegas and make money as well. Well, put 20 down on 19 for me the next time you go out there. (laughs) That's my dream age. That was my fun time. (laughs) Brent, there are so many things we can cover perhaps next time on what what is the government doing for us today? Let me count the ways. (laughs) Are we going to do that before the election or after the election? Well, it's unintended consequences. One of my favorite lines with the politicians is, don't judge me by my actions, judge me by my intentions. So they always create these laws that are intended, obviously, or they think they're intended for good reasons, but then there are loopholes that they never saw because most of the time they have never owned and operated a small business. Yeah. And small business is what runs our country. Yes, and as political as I get on this show, if they support small business, I support them. If it's good for small business, it's good for everybody. I like it. (laughs) Brent, thank you so much. Once again, Brent Wilsey from Wilsey Asset Management. Anything that you need to ask him, you can reach it right through BizSoup where you found us. All of the transcripts and links to Brent's operation, that is Wilsey Asset Management, located in beautiful Southern California, right there at BizSoup. Brent, thanks for being on this serving of Business Soup. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. This has been another serving of Business Soup, where business comes for business. I'm John Debevoise, inviting you to visit the website for more servings of what is best in business. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.